0: Welcome to the Financial Purpose Podcast. All opinions expressed by me or guests of the podcast are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Life Moves Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment or financial decisions. Clients of Life Moves Wealth Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. All right, and welcome to episode 17 of the Financial Purpose Podcast. I have a great, great guest today, uh, Jamie Bourne. Say hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. (laughs) Good, she's paying attention. Um, Jamie owns a a counseling service uh, here in the local uh, Phoenix area. I've known Jamie for a couple of years and we were having a conversation over the past couple of weeks and I thought it would be interesting to uh, have that conversation as a podcast episode rather than just an email thread. Jamie, let me read a little bit about you and then uh, you can introduce yourself in case I don't get everything correct. So Jamie earned a master's degree in social work from the University of Missouri. I think that's where I'm supposed to say go Tigers. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Go Tigers. Yes. Okay.
0: Um, and is independently licensed as a clinical social worker in Arizona, Missouri, Florida, and Texas. She holds additional, uh, additional. that's mm-hmm. a word. She holds additional credentials as a board approved clinical supervisor, certified life coach, certified clinical trauma professional, and is an eye movement desensitization and reprocessing practitioner. I don't know what that is. So We're going to come back to that. I'm going to write that down because that's interesting.
1: EMDR for short.
0: Yes. Uh, All right. So you have served as a consultant and speaker and feel strongly about supporting individuals and continuing their growth journey across the lifespan. Um, And you've done some other really cool stuff with the Entrepreneurs uh, Organization, Young President's Organization. And uh, you live in North Phoenix with your wonderful husband and three children, which are fun to follow. Jamie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. No, I think you uh, kind of covered everything.
0: Yeah. So the, the conversation, Jamie, that we've been having is um, because of your work as a counselor um, and my work as an advisor, and, and we've talked about this before. Sometimes my work crosses kind of into a little bit of counseling, right? Um, just because I'm dealing with people who are making financial decisions, and my philosophy is if I don't understand the mind that's making the decision it's almost malpractice to ask somebody to do something without understanding the motivations uh, or the factors that they may be processing to make that decision, right? And whether or not they're in a good place to do so. Um, And so I had asked you about uh, this thing that I had kind of thought of as nothing better than just drift. It, It feels like there's just this drift that a lot of people are going through. And so I guess we can start by um, saying that I think that, and you, you, uh, you had mentioned this in your notes, that there's, there's definitely a marker where the pandemic changed fundamentally some things. So prior to the pandemic, what were people coming to you for as a counselor? What were they dealing with, and how how have you seen that change over the past two and a half, three years?
1: Sure. So so prior to the pandemic, I think, um, you know, people were not seeking mental health services until things felt like they were at a crisis point. Um, and I think that that has shifted a little bit over uh, the last, you know, three years. However, I think you could also make an argument that that was a global crisis um, that that at its core shifted, I think, in a really positive way, how people are utilizing and viewing the mental health system. It, you know, historically, it's been really reactive. Um, my hope is that we can continue to move to a space of being more proactive. Right. One of the things that you had said in, in my bio was around working with people over the continuum of their life right and how do we start to utilize therapy in a proactive way rather than a reactive way so that people have well really so people can avoid drifts to be quite to be quite frank i think a lot of times people get into drifts because we just operate subconsciously so much of the time uh unless we're really inten- intentional about getting out of that space and so prior to the pandemic i think a lot of people were coming for you know, mild anxiety, depression. A lot of the work that I have always focused on is trauma and substance abuse. And I have worked with kids of all ages. So young kids, um, teens, adults, couples, families. And so both of those issues are have, have always been, been really relevant uh, and then really ramped up and became more normalized, I think, in mm-hmm. the last three years. I think that people are redefining their definition of trauma and, and redefining the acceptability around seeking services. And as a result, the mental health system is pretty taxed. I I get a lot of feedback from folks around trying to find services and they're, you know, calling people and nobody's even returning their call, having trouble finding affordable services, all of those, those sorts of things. And so one of the the things that I've been working really hard at is making sure that people can get connected to resources, whatever, whatever that may be. So I don't know content has changed as much as we might think that it has in terms of what we're working on therapeutically, but when people are seeking services and they're getting services earlier than perhaps they would in the past.
0: In your, you know, in the notes that we had exchanged, you talked about big T trauma and little t trauma. So can you explain what the difference between those two things are?
1: Yeah. So, so it, it fascinates me, right? When somebody is coming in, I used to ask the question. So tell me about anything traumatic that you've experienced in your life. And 99% of the time people will answer none. I didn't, I didn't have anything traumatic in my life. And when you start really getting into people's histories, it is quite literally riddled with trauma, but people don't necessarily define some of those things as trauma in the way uh, that as a, as a, certified clinical trauma professional that I do. Big T traumas are those big traumas that anybody would identify as being traumatic. So, you know, being in engaged in an active active war, um, a very horrific car accident, um, a rape, right? These kinds of things that anybody that would look at that from the outside would be like, oh yeah, that's trauma. Whereas you have little T traumas, which are those more insidious kind of day-to-day life stressors that actually over time can cause the same, if not worse, trauma symptom presentations as those big T traumas do. Um, and those are the things that we don't readily identify as as being traumatic, but they are.
0: Yeah. And that's that's interesting. And hearing you say that, the, the first thought that came to my mind is um so the little T traumas can can kind of stack up or compound on each other to become worse than a big T trauma. Is is that something where eventually it kind of becomes self-fulfilling because one thing goes wrong so let's say it's a job loss right something that is is insidious it's not a you know a, it's a huge inconvenience it can actually be financially and uh, socially it can be a very traumatic thing but but let's say that there's a job change and we'll say it's a change because there's been a replacement but then like the car breaks down and then the sister yells at you on the phone or, or whatever it is right like all these little things are, or you have a fight with a parent that has been a rocky relationship, right? So those things, how do you see those compounding and leading to just like, does it eventually become a big T or how does that work?
1: It it can. And here's the thing as, as humans, we all experience both of those things. (laughs) I don't think any of us get out of life unscathed from either little T traumas or big T traumas. They do look different for, for everybody. And what we do know is that trauma, it's, particularly early childhood trauma uh, and into those more formative years changes the way that our brain develops. It changes the physiology of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're almost teed up, right, to be experiencing life at an elevated level, whereas somebody who didn't necessarily have all of those stressors has a different um, different brain chemistry. And what that does is it positions people to be making decisions out of a state of fight, flight, or freeze, right? Um, and so when you're in that kind of decision-making, your your limbic system is not fully online. So you don't have the capacity to look at all of the things that somebody who isn't firing on that, on that level has. And so it certainly can predispose you, right? There are poor health outcomes associated with early childhood trauma. And so it changes the way that, that, that we show up to life.
0: Yeah. And I, I often on, on the money side of, of that equation, because I am not, and will never pretend to be a licensed counselor. Right. So I, I, Know things basically just because there's things that I've experienced or I've seen right. So I have some anecdotal evidence of different things. But I believe that in childhood trauma is a part of that, is kind of how you form a money story. You know, you see how your parents were with money or or weren't with money sometimes. Um, you hear how they talk about it, right? It shapes your a little bit of your values around money. And and I think that becomes more than just about money as a, as a utilitarianism tool, right? It becomes how you see the world financially really determines how you see the world in a lot of other places. And that's just one wedge that's kind of slid in there. So how do you, I think what, what I asked you in our notes is do you agree with that? And maybe how do you see that kind of catapults into other areas?
1: Well, I think that there are, we, we all develop money scripts, right? As as you're talking about, and The research actually shows that there are mental health challenges associated with not having enough financial security and also with an overabundance of financial security, and they 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 manifest in different ways. But there are on both ends of the spectrum mental health challenges, right? Where you've got insecurity around basic needs being met on the one hand, and on the other hand, there tends to be you know a, a really high pressure to achieve, um, you know, isolation from one's parents, um, and and relationally, and that causes a separate set of issues. But both are actually really significant. And so what I've seen working with couples and families is that when people are aware of their money script, it has much less power over dictating their present day actions and behaviors. When people are unaware of their money script, but any script in general, and oftentimes that money script is tied into some other kind of of trauma, whether that's, you know, attachment trauma with your parents, um, whether that's, you know, uh, socially at school, that, that it isn't just isolated to the financial part of it, but that it extends into these other areas. Uh, And when people are unaware of that, that is really when that has the potential to cause problems.
0: Yeah. And is there, is the, the awareness, is that a, is that a continuum in your experience? What do you mean? Meaning, um, so if somebody is unaware of those scripts that are running and informing their decisions. And then there's a point of awareness in the face of high emotions. So let's say uh, a major disruption in their personal life, their financial life, the stock market, whatever it is, um, where the emotions, uh, you know, what is that the uh, amygdala hijack or um, am I using the correct the correct terms there, right? So we slip back into the whole, you know, reptilian brain thing and we're making emotional decisions and we can't hear the rational decision. So is, is that more of a continuum or is that just uh, an emotional hijack in that point?
1: No, I think that it, that it's more of an emotional con- continuum, although you can get hijacked at, po- at points, right? And being aware of when you are hijacked, a term that we use a lot around that is being flooded. You have this awareness around being overly... Emotionally activated um, and flooded, it's not a great time to make decisions <laughs> because you're operating from that emotional space. And so, oftentimes, when I'm working with couples or families, um, we will talk about separating heart and business conversations. And I always recommend that people have those heart conversations first, because if we can kind of sift through what's coming up for each of us individually emotionally and have an understanding of here's how I'm showing up to this business meeting that we need to have about the finances. And here's how you're showing up to this business meeting about the finances. All of a sudden we're already connected in a different way. If we, we jump into that too fast and people are already, you know, elevated higher emotionally than they, than they would normally be, then that conversation gets even more hijacked and doesn't go anywhere productive. So making sure that you're separating those two.
0: Yeah. And I, I, of course, have seen that play out in my office from time to time. And so it, I imagine you see it, of course. And it's always, it's interesting to me because I I feel like, well, let me, let me back up what I feel. Um, Is, is money still, as much as we know, is that still kind of the biggest uh, breaker of a, of a marriage?
1: It, it's a big piece to it. I think that the, a, a lot of times the, the big, issues that people are seeking services around are financial and child child rearing. um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that has to do with well, a lot of the work that I do around that is how people are communicating about those issues. So it's not even necessarily that there's a disagreement on how it can go about it's on how they're communicating about those differences that is problematic. And causes things to elevate because it's okay that you have different money scripts, right? In fact, that can actually be leveraged to your benefit um, as a couple, right? But it also has the ability to present as this point of contention. And that 100% boils down to how we're communicating about things and our individual awareness about what our money scripts are and where those and and parenting scripts, right? Uh, which is often tied into that financial script. So, so yes, um, and it doesn't mean that they have to be on the same page about that.
0: Yeah, and and I can, I mean, I I can tell you from my own experience, as uh, I know you're aware, Melissa and I, blended family, and so we had we had completely different money scripts, completely different parenting scripts. You know, both coming out of or coming into a second marriage, right? And we actually. Just had our 13th anniversary yesterday. Right. Perfect. Yeah. So we're doing like we we got figure it figured out. But the first couple of years, you know, there were definitely some uh and and I I I would probably agree that it was more communication. And a lot of that was on my side because I I was trying to figure out how to communicate my point, right? Which is part of the trauma going back is like, okay, I need to make sure that what I think is actually validated and and, coherent, and I can communicate it well and, and, you know, not get shot down or whatever. And I, I think in my experience, that's what I see a lot playing out too, is that one of the, one of the individuals in that relationship will say, you know, I feel like you never listen. I feel like you always shoot down my ideas, right? Those kinds of things. And really it's not, it, it could just be fully a communication gap.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think, you know, a lot of times people will even, you know, and here's what I love, because sometimes there are people doing this proactively and they're talking about parenting and finances. And then there's the reality, right? There's the theory of how we're going to do things. And then there's the reality of how we actually implement those. Right. And so talking about parenting, you know, and, and finances before you, you know, join accounts and, and start having babies is great. And then you also have to pivot in real time once those things actually happen, because the reality of those two things I don't think can ever be fully planned for. And so even when you're doing something like that proactively... I mean, we evolve, we change, we grow over time, our financial situation changes over time, it fluctuates, right? And so having the ability to communicate effectively about what's going on for me and how that's impacting us as a couple, those skills are are really critical to, I think, being able to make it through those, those kinds of ups and downs and being able to pivot when you need to.
0: Yeah. And I guess that, that kind of brings me back to the, to the drift, and In, it's interesting because what, what I've kind of just observed is that people, it seems, coming out of the pandemic, our value systems completely changed. Um, I've seen people who were committed to things just completely back out because the pandemic maybe gave them permission to reassess their priorities. And and so some things just aren't there anymore. Um, but I've also seen people just be a little bit, it's either that we're slower to take action or make decisions on things. Um, and I don't know if that's a, a matter of trying to, ass- again, that, that whole priority assessment, but I've also heard people on the other end of it say that they can't remember ever being so busy mm-hmm. with social events and kids things and all of that. So how, how do you see this drift kind of, you know, playing out? I know in your notes, you were talking about consistency and homeostasis and things like that. So Can you touch on that as far as from the expert's opinion? I'm using the word drift. What am I actually talking about?
1: Well, I think the drift is an appropriate term. And I think that it's easy to kind of demonize that as being, um, you know, ineffective and slows me down. And it's this thing that's really a pain, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right, Uh, that I need to jolt myself out of somehow. And the reality is, is that that's our brain's way of trying to protect us. Um, And so I think sometimes even just shifting how we're viewing being in a drift can, can actually help to, you know, having a little bit more grace for ourselves as we're going through some of these things. Um, because I think, you know, things were kind of trucking along and anytime we're in a drift, it's, it's even if it's, um, you know, maladaptive. So even if we are kind of drifting along life and we're in this pattern of, of, you know, thinking, behaving, responding, that's not actually serving us to our brain, it feels pretty comfortable. Right. And so it's really our brain's way of kind of conserving mental energy and and doing what is comfortable. Our brain always wants to do what's comfortable, even if it's not necessarily the best thing for us. And so I think a lot of times getting to a space where it does take some sort of I don't know if necessarily crisis, but some sort of point of interjection to get us to kind of go, Oh, uh, maybe we need to be doing something a little bit differently that this doesn't actually align with, you know, the goals that I have set for my life. And I think that a big piece to that is right. So we, you know, the pandemic kind of shook everything up. And so people are reassessing their core values. They're reassessing what's important to them. They're reassessing everything. And I think that that is a complete identity shift and that takes a lot more time than we think that it should, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And so I think that as the, the the dust settles and people are trying to figure out, you know, what does this actually look like moving forward? It's hard to be able to sit down and find the time to think about those things when you have X, Y, Z, A, B, and C that has to get done. And so what happens, I think, is that people get stuck in doing these urgent but very non important things on a day to day basis, and what happens is then that those important things that we really need to be focusing on, that are you know tied to our you know purpose and passion and how we derive meaning from life, sort of gets pushed on down the line, and that's how we get into that drift. And so I think to answer another aspect to that question is that there was a moment in time where people didn't know what was happening. No, nobody knew, you know, in the very beginning. What was going on. And then there was a huge range in how people experienced this. Right. People were like, I don't buy this at all. I'm just going to live my life the way I've been living it. And it's just fine. And there were other people who, you know, were on the very opposite end of that spectrum that were fearful to be in public, fearful to socialize, fearful for their health. Mm -hmm. For for the health of their loved ones, and that's just the physical impact. And then you think about right the the economic impact and how that um, you know that that hit people in different different ways. And so everybody is going to deal with that in a different way. Some people are going right. It's that fight, flight, or freeze. There's there's a fourth one, fun, but um, I do think some people are going to fight. So they're going out and they're like, all right, we got to pivot. We got to figure out how to do this differently. We're going to do all of these things. That's a fight mechanism. Fleeing, right? I'm, I'm just not, I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go hunker down, and I'm just gonna work from home, and I'm gonna do my thing, and, and I'm gonna, you know, kind of walk away from all of this, and, you know, kind of insulate myself a little bit, freezing, right? I'm just not gonna do anything. I can't make any decisions. I'm in paralysis. So I have all of these things that I need to do, and I just can't do any of them. Yeah, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think when people are coming out of that. It does slow our decision-making down. And people in general, I think, can still be disoriented, even if they don't think they are, that people are still trying to reorient to what life looks like now and what has shifted internally, right? And so people may not have spent the time or had the awareness that things have shifted for them internally. And so when these things are coming up and all of these decisions need to be made, and now I'm slow on making decisions, and that is unusual for me, why is that? Perhaps you're you're still reorienting too some internal shift that you've not, not yet recognized.
0: Yeah. And I think what's been really interesting with that, you know, especially in the lens of like an identity shift kind of thing, what I, what I wrote down as you were talking about it is that possibly the drift comes from there being conflict with where you're seeing your life moving versus where you think it should be moving, or maybe um, you're drifting or unable to make decisions because what you're trying to move toward is in conflict with what you used to move toward. And so that could be slowing down the decision-making thing. But I also wrote down the the disorient versus reoriented. And that was of interest to me because what I've seen seems to me, you might have a different lens on this because of what you do every day. But it seems to me that more and more people are talking about a heightened sense of anxiety and that's preventing them from doing things. And as you said earlier, the mental health profession is taxed with resources to be able to help these people. So and I know you can't, it would probably be inappropriate to just say, oh, these people just, it's not anxiety, it's a disorientation. And I think that probably would be a really foul blanket statement, right? But how much of that is... Like if, if I can't make a decision, that's going to make me overtly anxious. And then that's going to play out to other areas of my life. That's all tied to this, the identity shift. I mean, did the pandemic remap our brains? I mean, what? Sure.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I think the long-term effects of that have yet to be determined. Um, but when you think, I think by definition being disoriented is anxiety provoking and it's, it's a, it's an appropriate response. The problem is that people continue to experience that elevated level of anxiety after the appropriateness of that is gone. Mm -hmm. Right. So it isn't about like shutting off anxiety. You want anxiety. Anxiety is a really great thing when it's firing appropriately. Right. It's when that starts to misfire at times that it shouldn't be firing, that that can become problematic. And so, yes, I think when when it's it's almost the same thing. It's just a different way of describing it: disorientation, anxiety. I think that that's sort of a, a global global thing. And what should happen is that that system calms itself down. But that's not necessarily what we're seeing happening yet. And that's actually something over time, right? So we're designed from primitive days, when you walk outside and you see a lion, you want, I mean, that's when you want to go into fight, flight, flight, or freeze, right? right. You need that. It's a Survival mechanism. And what's happened is that that, that system is activated, but there's no lion. And so when that system is activated and there's not actually a threat right in front of you, cognitively, you're not making decisions in the same way that you would, if that, if that wasn't there. Does that make sense?
0: Makes perfect sense because the, you know, the stress of a situation feeds the emotion. And then again, back to the hijack, you're now making a decision from a different, you can't, it's like for me wanting to understand the person making the decision. I can't, when somebody, so say with the market volatility over the past year, if I get a a call from a client and they're really concerned and really upset about where the investment accounts are and things like that they're already by the time that they call me they're already in a state of emotional overdrive and any amount of logic that i introduce to that conversation is not going to work
1: correct which is where that's that's the difference between the heart and the business conversation right, right. you can call that logic versus emotion right. heart being the emotion logic being the business conversation when when that system is overly flooded um, you're not going to be able to to have those kind of logic logic conversations, and all all of that is is based in fear. so a great question <laughs> is what would you be doing if you weren't afraid of the outcome and oftentimes. Because those emotions are usually especially with market volatility, people are calling because they're scared. There's something in their in their future that that feels at risk in that moment, or even something right present day. And so I think a question to kind of shift people out of that is to say, okay, I'm hearing a lot of fear. What what would you be doing, thinking, feeling right now if you weren't afraid of the outcome? How would that shift what we're talking about right now? And and that seems to get people to stop at least momentarily and go, uh. Um, because even having the awareness of how much fear is actually present can start to take that activation level down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wrote that down. I'm going to steal that. Thank you. Cause that that's way better than going. Did you watch the news this morning? <laughs> <laughs> how much, how much CNBC are you watching?
1: Or calm down. Right, it's, right. it's okay. Take right. a breath, right? Like if it was that easy, people would do it. Uh, and it's just not, it's not that simplistic.
0: I learned a long time ago that even just at home and certainly with with clients, it's like if somebody's already over there, like the calm down thing. Not helpful. No, it's actually like. Yes. <laughs> went yeah. from nine to a 900. Yeah. <laughs> so as a you know, all of this stuff, I think because I see the financial impact of everything that we're talking about and that causes a lot of uh, shifts in how people think about money and even sometimes you know going back to understanding the mind of the person making the decision there are some decisions that are are purely logical they're in the person's best interest and they're fairly easy to implement and they just can't get there and sometimes it's a money script sometimes it's an emotion thing and so how do you you know if if you're somebody or if you're talking to somebody who might be listening to this conversation, how do they kind of make the shifts or what, what are the considerations maybe that they need to make or that they can consider making? Because when you say, I think the term like need to make is problematic potentially, right, for somebody. So as you point, let me tell you, yeah, what, you
1: need to do. <laughs> what
0: you need to do. Yes, I mean, that doesn't work either, right? That again, nine to 900. So how, how does somebody think about this? I know the hardest thing to do, and I'm sure there's a lot of psychology wrapped into this. The hardest thing to do is when you're in the middle of that, moment to just go, Oh, ah, I'm being irrational. Let me fix that real quick. So how does somebody interrupt that process when they're in the middle of it?
1: Well, some of it, it, you have to be aware of it first. And I think a lot of times people are unaware that that's happening in the moment. And so a lot of, I think, support around because logic and emotion, it's a spectrum. And everybody falls on that spectrum in different places and neither is good or bad. They both have side effects. Right. And so I think having some basic level of awareness as to where you fall on that spectrum Mm -hmm. is really, really important. Am I, am I so far over here? on logic that it's hard for me to see anybody that's expressing emotion about this because it just doesn't make sense to the very opposite end of the scale what you're describing right like how can you just disregard x y and z and continue like this doesn't make any sense help me understand Um, and sometimes that's actually a good question so help me understand why why we're continuing to do this When you say that this is the thing that you really want, and yet this behavior and thought process is not actually supportive of that thing that you say that you want, Mm -hmm. right? Because oftentimes there's some payout here uh, that people don't recognize. We call those secondary gains, right? And it's one of the things that makes change really, really hard because we continue. And maybe, maybe it is just that that drift is comfortable. That might be the secondary gain. Sure. Um, but there might be something something deeper as well. And so I think just having an understanding of where you're at on that spectrum is a good place to start and then really really getting clear on what am I doing <laughs> what do, what do I want to do? you know all, all of the things that I do on a day-to-day basis what what am I trying to get to and and being able to to outline that purpose, passion, you know, what are my core values, right? What what am yeah. I striving to do here? And then being able to take a really, really honest look at is what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis supporting that or not? And most of the time, there's a mixed bag, right? Most of the time, there's some things that you look at and you're like, oh yeah, I feel good about that. That's that's moving me here. And yet, why am I continuing to do you know these things that are sabotaging those forward movements and, and then taking a little deeper dive into what those things are and why they mm. can take, To exist, and I so I think that those are are good places to start.
0: Yeah, and and uh, I was we were talking before we started recording about financial purpose, and that's how I kind of you know use that as a almost like a process interrupter for people who are making emotional decisions. Is that I know that when we when you were operating from a logical brain from the business side of your of your homeostasis, we were able to determine your core values and write out what's most important and what are we working toward. And so I use the example of you knowing my financial purpose and Jamie, if you were my financial advisor and you knew my financial purpose, and if I came to you with a decision like I'm going to buy a Ferrari tomorrow, the first question isn't, let's see if you can afford it. The the first question is what's going on.
1: Help help me understand uh, that. Help me understand your motivation for that.
0: Yeah, because it would be really cool to buy a Ferrari, I suppose, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, but it doesn't. My financial purpose, it doesn't help me, you know, build a business, give my wife options, give freely to the community, go on adventures with the family. Right. So, so I, I think that's, that's a lot of it that at least that's my untrained way of interrupting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, there's other, you know, uh, subtle strategies too. like, once you have those, because I think what happens, right. Even if you take the time to sit down and outline those, those values and that, that purpose, it can get lost in just the day-to-day redundancy of what we have to do, which is in and of itself a drift, right? The redundancy of the day-to-day is a drift. And so it's easy to get caught up in that. And so what can you do to keep those, those at the forefront of your mind, right? I worked with a family who had a huge um, steel carved out letters as they're leaving the house to go into the garage, their family values. So there's, there's five huge signs as everybody walks out of that house every single morning. And, and so that's a reminder to all of them on a daily basis. These are the values that we're trying to uphold, uh, in our life as, as this family unit, you know? And so what are, what are we doing to make sure that that stuff doesn't get lost in the, in the day to day?
0: I I like that. I I think it really can work. And and you always run the risk of that becoming just wallpaper. So, and that's the intentionality behind it. And and I wanted to ask you about one thing that you said um, a couple of minutes ago, you're talking about the continuum of the ultra logic versus the ultra emotional from the pandemic moving forward. Did that, I think that might've contributed to some of the tribalism that kind of came out of that. What I mean by tribalism is you believed it, you didn't. You got the vaccination, you didn't, you voted for this one, you didn't, like that kind of thing.
1: Polarization,
0: yes. And, yep. and it felt like ultra polarization, like there was no middle ground. You were either for it or if you weren't yes. for it, 100%. Like if you're unsure, then you're absolutely against it either way. Right. Right. So is that, is that part of that continuum? Is that kind of what feeds into that? Or is it something completely different for another conversation?
1: I, I think that that's actually different. I think that that is a, right? Because what a, when, when the brain experiences something traumatic, right? We all, as I said, deal with that in different ways. And so I think that some of that is an attempt to find what's comforting and normal and feels Good and safe, yeah. and that's different for different people. And so, I guess maybe in some ways it does reflect that those the the, the opposite ends of the spectrum because that's what you see. Some people felt really, really safe here. Yeah. And other people felt really, really safe here. And and rather than you know just kind of acknowledge and say, great, do what you need to do to feel safe right now, whatever that looks like. There was this demonization of the other end of that of that spectrum. And right. you know the reality is we're all human, dealing with human conditions. And um, so I think they were actually both responses to trauma, that just looked very different. And so when they look very different, people don't understand how you could respond to something in such a way when your own personal response is very different. And then there were a whole bunch of people in the middle of that that were like, "I what? (laughs) (laughs) It's similar, right? Where they didn't, you know, they had a different trauma response that wasn't quite so polarized um, and that still felt
0: scary. Yeah. So I I think on the way to landing the plane here, I had asked you what what some steps are that people can take to kind of safeguard their health because I, I think we've done a pretty good job in this conversation establishing some of the mental health I want to be very careful with using the word issues, (laughs) but some of the, some of the mental health considerations maybe is a a better um, term for this. As a lot of it comes back from trauma, it it impacts the way that we make decisions. There's always a financial component wrapped up in a lot of that. So what, what can people do kind of as some ways to maybe even safeguard their mental health as they're experiencing or, or interpreting some of this trauma and then Maybe even more importantly, what can somebody do to get help?
1: Yeah, so I think there's there's a lot of protective factors that that around mental health, and I think that that one of the things that's really important is to neutralize the language that we're using around challenges with mental health. Right? We we categorize different emotions as good or bad, mm-hmm. and the reality is is that they are neither good or bad. Uh, they are simply information, and we want those things to be firing again when they should be it to the appropriate, you know, duration and frequency and intensity, given the context of the, of the situation. And so I think that it's not necessarily emotional distress is not, is not necessarily tied to a distinct emotion, but it is tied to how we talk to ourselves about the emotions that we're experiencing. If we identify this as being problematic, then it is problematic. Instead, if we can start to look at some of those emotions that we, you know, tend to label as bad as, and start asking different questions around that. What is, what is my brain and my body trying to alert me to right now? Is there something going on that needs my attention? Why is this emotion coming up for me right now? Because there's information in that. So if you, you feel, you know, you walk into a room and you feel, you know, unsteady about something and the hair on the back of your neck prickles up instead of being like, oh, here's this anxiety thing again. And it's just Uh destroying everything. As soon as I walk into this room and I don't even know why, right. If we can shift out of that space into a space of curiosity around what is going on right now, is there a real reason that I should be experiencing this or not? And if so, how do I then tend to it? And if not, why is that firing right now Mm -hmm. and start to get to kind of the root of what, what is activating that in moments that it doesn't need to be activating that that is, that that is a big protective factor. Having strong connections with your family and community is, is a huge protective factor. Connection, 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 connection. It's one of the biggest um, protective factors in terms of mental health. And sometimes we have a chosen family. That doesn't necessarily, family doesn't have to indicate, right? Biological.
0: Right. Biological, yeah. Well, and and just real quick on the connection thing, that that's one of the things uh, that mm-hmm. we saw um, that fundamentally was potentially harmful with the pandemic is, we were told not to physically connect right now. Now zoom and, and FaceTimes and all those things became really a great way for people to connect, but it's not the same as being in somebody's space, right? There's a, there um, there's an energy. Uh, yeah. Is it, is it a dopamine thing? I mean, with,
1: well, it, I mean, it's just having something tangible. There is, I mean, it is different connecting, you know, virtually than it is in person. Um, it's I, I don't know. It, it's disorienting though, right? When we're used to being in close proximity, it doesn't necessarily mean that just because we're physically disconnected, that we can't still feel connected emotionally and and, and mentally, but it sure. was a reorientation of the definition of what it means to be connected to our family. Yeah. So that's actually a good example of that, of that concept. So, I mean, and, and people have different thresholds of comfort around connecting and physical connection versus, you know, this kind of connection. Some people are much more comfortable connecting with people in this way than they are physically and, you know, standing next to somebody.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Spectrum there too. Right. Love languages. Some people are really high on physical touch. Some people are not. Uh, And so it wasn't a big deal. They were like, okay, cool. No hubs. Perfect. Whereas for other people, that was really, really devastating. So I don't know if that answered. Did that answer Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I, I, and I'll tell you, I almost I almost cried when there was the report that uh, the Dr. Fauci had said that it might be a thing where where we no longer high five or shake hands. I was like, no, no, those are. important yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah. So going back to, to what you were talking about on the thing of connection and increasing, you know, family and community and service and things like that, when is the point where somebody should consider therapy services?
1: So I think with with therapy services, this is sort of a double-edged sword for me because my training will say when it becomes pervasive and it's causing... Pervasive problems in one's life, meaning it, it it's causing problems in multiple areas of one's life, mm-hmm. to to the point that it is disrupting disrupting life in a negative way. I actually disagree with that, and it goes back to what you know what I was talking about earlier around the reactivity of the mental health system. I don't understand why this isn't as normalized as you know a, a physical that you go have every year um and why we're not doing those sorts of things with mental health you know why why are we waiting until people are fully grown adults with really really long standing maladaptive ways of behaving and uh dis- making decisions based on on traumas that are no longer present why are we not starting with kids when they're very young and talking about all of these things um, and getting into a space where it's more, more proactive. So I think that a really good time to do therapy is when things are really hard and you're in distress. I think the best time to do therapy is when things are easy and you feel good because you can dig into some of those, You, you have more stamina and strength, I think, to do some of the deeper dive into the more insidious, darker, destabilizing Spaces than you do when you're in distress, when you're in distress and you come in, what is it? It's triaging, right? We're, we're, we're bandaging symptoms, but we're not looking at the source of the wound. And until we can get to the source of the wound, you're always going to be putting on those band-aids, right? Which is what those crisis points points are. And then we're just looking at stabilization and oftentimes people get stabilized and they're like, great, I feel good. Thanks for your help. And then they go on without ever getting down to that root root cause of what was initially causing that. Um, and so it's become this sort of revolving door around bandaging people up and sending them on their way.
0: Yes. So as a clinician, I would imagine that gets very difficult um, to actually understand what somebody's true homeostasis is because you're meeting them in crisis and then you're only seeing them come out of crisis, but you don't know what that bell curve is.
1: Correct. And then, you know, right. As a clinical supervisor, I really, I have the privilege of supporting incoming clinicians at, you know, defining who they are as clinicians and uh, learning how to, to do this. And so many of them struggle with this concept. Like, so it seems like everything's kind of going okay. So I, Like, should I be terminating? Like, is this, this isn't appropriate to give care anymore. And I'm like, are they getting value from this? So just because people don't have a high, you know, level of symptom presentation doesn't mean that therapy is not valuable for them and that you can't be doing really, really, really important work. But it is, again, that sort of the training that you get kind of coming in, right, is, is around that symptomology presentation. So again, I think that the best time is when you're feeling really great and also when you're not feeling great. So, mm-hmm.
0: And when you're feeling great, uh, I imagine that that gives the person and the clinician some tools to work with when things kind of go south. Yes. Okay. Well, Jamie, this has been informative for me. Is there anything else you would add or that I haven't asked about or that you want to ask me that would make sense in the conversation?
1: Um, I don't think so. I just appreciate the conversation. I feel like one of the things that I appreciate you just as about you as a human is just your attention to this, because I think a lot of times people really try to separate this is finances. You got to take the finances out of, you know, it's business. You can't have the emotions in business and you can't, we can't do this, but that's not how people work. (laughs) It's not how people work. And I think that people there's, there's a disservice being done when people are coming with emotional things and the response is great. How are we going to, you know, finance that when that's not, as you were saying, the, the, the best response. Uh, So I just appreciate the, because I, this goes back to, for me, kind of the holistic nature of this. Like we have these silos, right? We've got finance silos, we've got medical silos, we've got mental health silos, we've got spiritual silos, we've got all of these silos.
0: And those all have baby silos within them, right? So, and so
1: why aren't we merging them? Because they all, they, uh, you know, and there's a lot of integrative health and and all of those things. And sure, uh, I just don't know how well we're doing all of that yet but it's nice to see people who are turning that way. So, yeah.
0: Well um, tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you if they would like to continue the conversation.
1: Yeah. So I'm happy to continue the conversation. The other commitment that we have made as an organization is to make sure that people are getting connected to resources, whatever that looks like, even if it's not with us. And so if you are one of those individuals that has not had a return call from a therapist or cannot find one that will accommodate your financial insurance, time, gender preference, whatever... We, we have made a commitment to helping people get connected to those resources. And so I'm happy to continue this conversation and or help people find access to whatever it is that they're looking for. Um, and so the best way to get in touch with me is to probably email or call. I would say the... Actually, it'll probably email because we are transferring our phone systems over right now. <laughs> I don't want to miss any. So probably just that info at born counseling.com.
0: And uh okay, so info at born counseling.com. And of course a good place to start would probably be born counseling.com, right? B O R N Counseling dot com.
1: Yes. Yeah we, we yes, we're switching all of the phones over. Uh, and the only reason I'm trigger shy today is because I got an email that said, I've been texting you and I didn't get, you <laughs> and I was like, no, it's not forwarding. Um, so I'm triaging that right now. Um, so let's stick with the info at Born Counseling or just go to borncounseling.com.
0: Yeah. All right, perfect. And then is there, um, is there a specialty that you work with in your practice? Is there somebody who would not be ideal or, or maybe a good fit for your particular skill set? I mean, it,
1: you know, we have we've got clinicians that work with a wide variety of issues. So um, we've got a clinician who specializes in working with kids and teens, um, and we've got a clinician who focuses primarily on um, trauma and doing EMDR intensives. We have a clinician who does somatic experiencing. Um, you know, we, we really have the ability to target a wide range of issues. Um, and so I don't know that there is anybody that's necessarily necessarily inappropriate to call. And if you're not a good fit for us, then we'll connect you to somebody that you would be a good fit for. So.
0: And if someone's listening to, to this outside of the area and they want to reach out to you, can you work with somebody who doesn't live in Arizona?
1: So I personally can work with people in Arizona, Missouri, Texas, and Florida. Okay. Um, because of the the licensing regulations, and we have networks that reach far and wide. So if you are listening from a different state and need to access services, uh, we can help find somebody that's local in your area. Okay. Some referrals that way.
0: Wonderful. Well, Jamie, it's been a, a true pleasure. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me.
1: Thanks for having me.